On behalf of uh, Dean Sandra Peart, who could not be with us this evening, and the entire Jepson faculty, let me welcome you to the fourth event of this year's Jepson Leadership Forum series, Moving People, the Perils and Promise of Nationalism. Thank you for joining us. Those of you here in person, and the actually several hundred of you watching online, as we welcome Ann Applebaum to the University of Richmond. My name is Ken Ruscio. For those of you who do not know me, I currently hold the deceptively lofty title of Distinguished Senior Lecturer here at the Jepson School, where I teach courses focused on democratic theory, political leadership, and the current state of affairs in American democracy. I'm also President Emeritus of Washington and Lee University and a former Dean of the Jepson School and a longtime higher education administrator and faculty member of both those institutions. This year's forum features scholars, activists, and experts dis uh, discussing the moral, ethical, and legal implications of global migration and asylum. Together, we are exploring how communities navigate the economic, social, and cultural transformation of a world with and without borders and walls. We had no idea how timely and relevant tonight's presentation would be when this event was planned about a year and a half ago. Tonight's event, as many of you know, was rescheduled from its original date to allow Ms. Applebaum to cover the extraordinary and most unfortunate time in history. As the war in Ukraine unfolds, voices like hers provide information and clarification to people around the world. Just this morning, she testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We thank you, Anne, for taking the time to be with us tonight. In fact, as you will soon see, we have adjusted the focus of the program tonight so that we may take full advantage of Anne's knowledge and expertise on the immediate issue of Ukraine, as well as democracy and autocracy. And after uh, we have an introduction of Anne here in a few minutes, I'll have an extended discussion with her. And some of my questions will come directly from students in two of our Jepson classes, one a freshman sophomore seminar and one an upper level course on the future of democracy. Both those classes have read her very important book, The Twilight of Democracy. One of the students in those classes is Nico Ellis. He will tell you a little bit more about our speaker. Nico is a junior majoring in leadership studies and political science, a native of Pennington, New Jersey. He is a member of the Gary McDowell Institute Student Fellowship Program and is currently interning in the office of Virginia House of Delegates Representative Betsy Carr. After college, he hopes to attend graduate or law school and pursue a career in public interest and environmental law. Please help me welcome Nico to introduce Anne. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Dr. Ruscio. And now it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's esteemed guest, Anne Applebaum. Ms. Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She's also a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Agora Institute, where she co-directs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. For 15 years, she was a columnist at the Washington Post, where she also served as a member of the editorial board. 
She worked as the foreign and deputy editor of The Spectator magazine in London, as the political editor of The Evening Standard, and as a columnist at Slate, as well as the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs. From 1988 to 1991, she covered the collapse of communism as the Warsaw correspondent of The Economist magazine and The Independent newspaper. She is currently covering the war in Ukraine for The Atlantic. Ms. Applebaum is the author of seven books, including Gulag, A History, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction in 2004. She also received literary, literary awards for her books Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, published in 2012, and Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, published in 2017. In her most recent book, Twilight of Democracy, published in 2020, Ms. Applebaum investigates the struggle between democracy and dictatorship. In addition to her books, Ms. Applebaum's writing has appeared in the, New York, in the New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Financial Times, The International Herald Tribune, and many other news publications. She has lectured at Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, Oxford, Cambridge, and many other universities. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ann Applebaum. much for, for joining us. We are, um, we're planning to have a, a conversation uh, this evening. Um, Anne has uh, kindly agreed to navigate some of the very, very important topics that are going on around us, and uh, we'll, we'll just kind of see where this leads. Um, so let me uh, start off, and first of all, by thanking you very much. As I mentioned, you're, uh, you were testifying this morning before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, you'll be back on the road soon after you finish here, so it's a busy time for you and a busy time for the world. So. Thank, thank you. Well, I, I appreciate the warm welcome. Um, I do always like to visit universities when I'm invited. Um, I think it's... Uh, um, you know, it's the best atmosphere for conversation, and so thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. And, and I forgot to mention, it's obligatory at this point to wish the University of Richmond basketball team good luck oh, in the right. tournament. Oh, right. Sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I wish you good luck in the basketball tournament, whichever one it is. That's okay. <laughs> but, but I don't know about professional basketball tournament. I gather there are some. There, there are. Okay. There are some. So, okay. I haven't been focused on it. Yeah. So I, I want to um, start off. We're, we, we've talked about running through a series of topics, and we're going to get to everything from Vladimir Putin to Ukraine to uh, autocracy and democracy, but I want to start off this way. One of the things that has most impressed me about your writing is your ability to tell a big story about conflict, about societies, uh, about war. Um, by talking about stories of the people who are most directly affected. So I think I wanted to start off the evening by, by really asking you to give us some sense of what must be happening on the ground with the people in Ukraine right now, and, and a little bit more even uh, what's going on in Poland, countries you know very, very well from your work. What, what must it be like? You're talking to your friends. Uh, tell us about that. So thank you for that question. Um, one of the things I do try to do in my writing is show that there is a relationship between these big ideas 
that often get debated at universities in a very abstract way. I was just talking to some students at dinner about what they read, and we talked about, you know, communitarianism and utilitarianism and, the, you know, these different arguments about society. Um, and sometimes we um, forget that these ideas really do shape and mold things that happen. Um, so the, the war in Ukraine is the result of a set of very bad ideas. Um, Putin has a philosophy, he has an ideology, he has a, a kind of rationality of his own, um, and within that logic, what he's doing makes sense to him. Um, and it's, of course, had this shattering effect on many millions of people. So, um, so that wasn't mine. Oh, that's mine. That was yours. Sorry. Okay. I thought I'd knocked over my microphone. <laughs> um, and so he, so, and so for example, when I wrote about, um, I wrote a big piece a couple of months ago for the Atlantic magazine on the nature of modern autocracy, but the, but the piece is actually structured around a couple of individuals who are, in both cases, in several cases, very ordinary people who, who ran into the deep injustices in their society and became dissidents, even though that wasn't their, how they imagined their, their lives would go. Um, so yes, I do try to, try to look at that. Um, you know, you, Ukraine, um, you know, we are watching really, I mean, we're watching a war happen, but we are also watching, you know, a moment when a nation is really transforming itself. And so, people who didn't know they had it in them to be soldiers or who had it in them to be part of a resistance movement have suddenly discovered that they do. Mm -hmm. um, and I, am, um, I have several Ukrainian friends and they are all there, they have not left. Um, I do know others who have left, usually people leave because they have small children. Um, one of my friends who was there sent me a note today. Um, she was describing how she's in, a, she's in southern Ukraine interviewing people in kind of small towns and villages that have been affected by the war. She's a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, and she said one of the most extraordinary things is how people really do understand what's happening to them in a geopolitical context. They understand this is a war between Western ideas and um, you know, and, 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 and a sort of, you know, Russian Soviet imperial nostalgia. Um, they understand that it's a kind of clash of civilizations or a clash of different worldviews. Um, and they understand that they're playing a role in that clash and that it's therefore incumbent upon them to choose sides. Um, and these are, you know, these are farmers and school teachers and ordinary people who suddenly, you know, see this about the world. Um, and, and I think most Ukrainians are undergoing some version of that. I mean, even those who've left or who want to leave or who, um, who, who haven't stayed to be, to be part of the, you know, the, the resistance, which has many different facets. I mean, there are, of course, people who work in the food distribution industry who have to stay because if they all left, that would be a disaster. I mean, not everybody is staying to be a fighter. People are staying to continue to participate in the society and make it function. Um, and that's just as important, actually, um, right now as fighting. Um, and so I, I think, you know, people have suddenly, you know, things are suddenly in very sharp contrast and people understand, you know, themselves and their relationships to their country and to their neighbors in a different way than they did before. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that happens in very extreme moments. I mean, if you read about what happened during the occupation in Warsaw during the Second World War. You hear similar kinds of stories. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the exposure to an extreme event like that um, changes people. Have you been surprised by the 
determination and the resistance in Ukraine? So I'm not entirely surprised. Um, it's funny, I, I, I told this anecdote to you before we, before, earlier, but I'll, I'll repeat it again. So I have a friend, a colleague, who's one of the great experts on the Russian military in, um, in Washington. And I was at a little meeting with him about two weeks before the war in which we, he was explaining what he thought was gonna happen. And essentially his version of what would happen was very similar to what the Russians thought would happen, namely that the Ukrainians would cave within 48 hours, there would be a puppet government put into Kiev. Um, and of course he thought this because he was reading all of the Russian material. He was reading about the Russian army, he, under, you know, he follows the careers of various generals, I mean really intimate knowledge of, of how their, their military strategy and how it works and so on. And I said, well, what about Ukrainian resistance? I mean, this is a country that is famously kind of a grassroots up organized country. They've always been very bad at organizing the, the state. You know, they're, you know they're, their government is always kind of weak and ropey, but they're very good at civic organization and civic movements. And I said, maybe this is a country that's gonna create a, um, a, real, um, a real resistance. And he sort of laughed at me and he said, oh, you know, you live in a bubble. You know, you're surrounded by your Ukrainian friends and therefore you think that's gonna happen. Um, and I said to him, maybe you live in the bubble. You, know? <laughs> you, you read Russian you know, military documents all day long. Um, this is an American, by the way, so it's a, you know. Um, you know, and now I, th and so it wasn't that I, it, it's not that I'm entirely, I mean, I'm, I'm only surprised because so many people told me that something different was gonna happen and people who really know things, you know, not, not random people. Um, but, I, but I'm not entirely surprised. So one of the facets of Ukrainian-ness that's interesting is that it's a nation that has, in effect, it was a kind of colony, first of the Polish, um, Polish Empire, the Commonwealth it was called, um, then later the Russian Empire. And Ukrainian-ness has always developed in opposition to the state, um, in opposition to the nobility. I mean, it was a little bit different at different times. Um, and it has this tradition of um, the, you know, people suddenly coming together in emergencies. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I did know that, and I, know, I knew that that was possible, but of course so many people told me I was crazy that I had to, mm -hmm. I had to dampen down that, that, that expectation. So I'm not entirely surprised now. So uh, let, me, let me kind of broaden that circle out a little bit um, to talk about the, the refugee uh, crisis uh, that, that is going on right now. And uh, I think at last count it was maybe three and a half million. They, do I have that number right? Have left or? I've heard sort of 1.7 million okay. so far, but who knows? I mean, it may but be higher than that. A lot. A lot of yeah. people. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're headed to a variety of countries, although Poland, uh, a, a country you live in, um, is, is probably the primary one right now. So can you, can you talk a little bit about um, the refugees, the uh, impact on the neighboring countries, the, the people um, in the neighboring countries, and how they seem to be coping with it right now. So the, the, because of the particular nature of this wave of refugees, um, the reception of them so far, and this is very early days, you know, we're like a week into this refugee crisis. Um, in the, so far, the, ref, the, the reception of them is unbelievably warm. Um, partly it is because these are mostly women and children um, and some elderly people. 
um, and there is a you know there is a feeling that they're genuinely escaping a disaster. There's no suspicion about them trying to want something else, which is what you sometimes get with refugees or with migrants. Um, and there is an instinct to help people, and, and almost all of the refugees in Poland, and Poland is, has a large number because Poland has the longest border with Ukraine. Mm. Also, um, Polish and Ukrainian are close enough that there is a lot of, they find it easy to understand one another. I think same with Ukrainian and Slovak, but, um, but so there is a, you know, and there's also, there's now a tradition of Ukrainians working in Poland. That's been true for the last decade. So there are a lot of people who have contacts and friends there. But almost the entire um, you know, cohort of refugees in Poland are almost all staying in private people's houses. Um, so there's, I mean, actually there's been very little, there are very few camps. I mean, there may, we may eventually get there because we're gonna come to a limit where there aren't, aren't more houses. Um, so they're mostly staying with people. There's a system whereby the refugee agencies, you can call them and give them your phone number and your address and they'll send someone to you. Um, and so, but that's mostly organized by NGOs, you know, by ch refugee charities. There's one very good one in Poland. Um, and, you know, I have, for example, I have a Polish friend who's out of the country this year. They're spending some, they're, she's spending a year abroad. And so they, they organize for their house where, where they normally live in Warsaw to be given to refugees. And then you can just do that by making some phone calls. Right. So that's, that's how it's working. And as I said, one of the things, I, I just said this also at dinner, I mean, one of the things I learned during the COVID crisis is that making judgments about how people are going to feel about something during the first weeks or months of the crisis is a mistake because people, as, the, as it goes on, people's, people's opinions change. And so right now there's this feeling of, you know, we, we have to help people. I mean, the Polish government has passed a law saying that um, all the Ukrainian refugees immediately get the equivalent of a social security number so they can all work. Hmm. Um, all the children are automatically admitted to school. Hmm. Um, and there's also a, um, there's some kind of payment. I mean, it's not very much money, but there's a little bit of money that's going to them. So there's a you know, big, you know, it's, it's an enormous um, you know, an enormous effort is being made, but it's mostly privately organized. Mm -hmm. So um, let me let me uh, kind of move from the, the 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 individual people being most affected to uh, talk a little bit about the people who are making decisions that affect those people, um, and and get kind of your impressions of the leaders and policymakers who are central to the story. And, and let's start with um, one that I, I, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, uh, President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. What, what I, can I you um, tell us what you know about him? Uh, again, were you surprised? Uh, so he I am more surprised by. So I, I, um, I don't know him at all intimately, but I've been in rooms where he is. I've seen him speak in public. I've met his chief of staff. Um, he is somebody who... Um, you know, whose, whose career was as a, he was quite a famous comedian. I mean, I didn't know what the who the equivalent would be here, maybe Jon Stewart or somebody like that. I mean, he was a, he was a famous, well-known comedian and actor, but a comic actor. I mean, he wasn't Shakespearean, um, tra you know, didn't do Shakespearean tragedy. Um, and I, as I was just saying at dinner, you can look up Zelensky and dancing, and there's a sort of Ukrainian dance, televised dance contest program, and you can see Zelensky in a kind of hot pink, you know, jumpsuit. You know, we, he, and he won this this contest. Um, so, you know, so he was somebody who liked to make people laugh. I mean, he wasn't, you know, a serious figure. What's very interesting about him, though, is that he 
He did launch a television series, and it was called Servant of the People. It was a, you know, it was a seven-part, seven-season series. Um, and in that series, he plays an ordinary Ukrainian history teacher who accidentally becomes president. And in the series, he, he's, he's filmed, he's a sort of, you know, he lives with his mother and his wife has left him and he's a sort of pathetic figure and everybody's mean to him. And, and you know, and then at some point during the school day, he, he starts ranting about corruption, okay? And one of his students films him and the film goes viral. This is in the plot of the movie. Um, and, and it's so popular that he's elected president. And so one day he wakes up in the morning and someone's knocking his door and there's, you know, I forget what, I don't remember what his name is in the movie, but you know, you're, hello, good, good morning, Mr. President. And then suddenly everything changes and people are, you know, worshipful of him. And part of the joke of the movie, of the series rather, um, is it's making fun of Ukrainians over respect for power. Mm. You know, so he's somebody who appealed to people by, a little bit by mocking the political system. Um, and he was elected, I mean, he was elected because of the series. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no question that they were, people were voting for that kind of president. You know, that's who they wanted, an ordinary guy who's accidentally president. He wasn't really an ordinary guy, he was a famous comedian, but. Yeah. Um, and as president, he was, people had mixed feelings about him um, until last week. Um, and I saw him right after he was elected. He, he was at a, there was an event that he spoke at, a sort of conference that he spoke at, where he, event, he, he basically did a kind of comedy routine. It was a sort of routine with someone, and someone pretended to be him, and then they swapped places, and so on, you know. And it was fine, but I remember afterwards people saying, this was maybe a month after he won, um, people in the audience saying, well, that's all very well, and you know, it's very jolly and amusing to have a funny president, but you know, this country's at war, and how is he gonna behave? And so nobody really knew how he would behave. And I think um, he has risen to the moment. I mean, surely his acting and television skills help him, but I don't think that what you're seeing is fake either. Mm. So, so what he is, what he's trying to do is to speak to people not as a kind of great figure on high, but as an ordinary person. I mean, if you've seen him in the last few days, he's wearing t-shirts and sort of vaguely green in a sort of military way, but he's not wearing a uniform. Mm -hmm. So he's dressed the way other Ukrainians are dressed right now and the way the Territorial Army is dressed. Yeah. Um, the Territorial Army being the volunteer army, the reserves, who, people who have just joined. Um, so he's one of them. He's speaking to them as an equal. Um, he, you know, he's, his, his, his goal is to inspire people to keep going. Um, uh, he, and I think it's, you know, I think it really is a case, I think he's inspired not only his country, but people around the world. Um, in particular, the first couple of days, if you remember when he was, the Americans offered him a lift, they offered to take him away, actually, and he said, I don't want a lift, I just want more ammunition. Mm -hmm. And this kind of, you know, it was so surprising to hear it now when we, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, people don't expect that of, of you know, people in that position, someone who could get away and who could take his family away is not doing it. So his family is there too. So, so one, of, one of the things that, um, for, for those of us who are trying to get up to speed on Ukrainian history, um, one of the questions for me has been, is Zelensky articulating and explaining the U Ukrainian identity or is he redefining it in this moment? So a bit of both. I mean, national identities are always constantly redefined, but 
so Ukraine has always had, because it was a kind of land colony, first of the Polish Empire, was kind of early, late medieval, early modern empire, then later of the Russian Empire. Ukrainian identity was always about fighting against the oppressors, the nobility, you know, the, 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 the occupiers. Um, more recently, it's become very closely connected to the idea of democracy. Mm -hmm. and the idea that Ukraine is a country that is European, and they mean by that it should be integrated with the rest of the world. Um, one interesting point about that for, um, for those of you who are political scientists here, are students of political science. You know, political science makes this distinction between civic nationalism and ethnic nationalism. And ethnic nationalism is a kind of nationalism that's about tribal, kind of tribalism, you know. It's about reviving our country and our people and so on. And civic nationalism, which can also be called patriotism if you want to be nicer about it, um, is a broader idea of the nation as, you know, members of the community and people who abide by the laws and so on. And although no one ever told the Ukrainians about you know, civic versus ethnic nationalism, Zelensky really embodies this civic nationalism. Um, he is, of course, not ethnic Ukrainian. He's Jewish. Um, he is also a native Russian speaker. He's from the southern part of Ukraine, which is more Russian-speaking, although he does, of course, speak Ukrainian. Um, and so for a nation that is, in fact, bilingual, and in fact has you know, several religions. I mean, they're actually, they're Ukrainian Orthodox. They're also Ukrainian, there's a form of Ukrainian Catholicism yeah. um, called Greek, they're, they're sometimes called Greek Catholics. Um, but they're part of the Catholic Church and they, you know, they're, they're in the hierarchy of the Pope. Um, so it's, it's actually a nation that has these different aspects to it. And for that kind of nation, this is, of course, the only form of nationalism or patriotism that works. Mm -hmm. um, and he has, he has, it existed already before he became president. I mean, he couldn't have become president otherwise because he's not an ethnic Ukrainian. But he is articulating that and explaining it and projecting it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in a way, solidifying that as the real Ukrainianness. So real Ukrainianness is not that you speak Ukrainian and your ancestors were Ukrainian, real Ukrainians is that you're part of this, you know, you know your country is, you know, is European and democratic um, and you believe in a liberal society and you're willing to fight for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's, um, let's turn to, um, I, I want to get to Vladimir Putin, but before we do, um, some of the other uh, European leaders who, who have um, stuck out for you uh, either for good reasons or not good reasons. And I think of you know, the president of France, Boris Johnson, uh, uh, Hungary, uh, Orban. Uh, are, there, are there ones that you are looking at at the moment in saying uh, this person um, is either playing a vital role or should be playing a vital role? So probably the European leader playing the most vital role right now is the one you all probably know the least, um, A, because he hasn't been there very long, and B, because he's not very colorful, and that's the Chancellor of Germany. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Olaf Scholz, who was, a, you know, the Germans don't like interesting politicians. They like their politicians to be kind of boring. Mm -hmm. And Scholz is a, you know, he was the, you know, kind he's of... boring. <laughs> he was boring. I mean, he was a sort of leader in Hamburg, which is a very successful nice, not very interesting. Well, it's actually that's unfair. It's a very pretty city. I, I don't want to be mean about Hamburg, but, but he was, he, you know, he, he, he seemed very solid and, you know, he would, had been a successful, you know, local regional leader, but nobody really had that many expectations from him. And, you know, well, again, there's who knows what's going to happen next. 
Um, he has already, partly I think because he spent a lot of time with Putin, having never encountered him before. I mean, so Merkel was chancellor for 16 years. He suddenly came into the job. You know, this is his first crisis, and he went to see Putin. He spent a lot of time with him, he went at least once, maybe twice. Um, you know, and listen to Putin ranting about history and, you know, resentment and so on. Um, and he, he has understood that this is a pivotal moment in history, and he has told the Germans that. Mm -hmm. And he has, you know, Germany has been a, since the war, um, has been a very vocal advocate of pacifism, which sometimes was very admirable, but sometimes also shaded into a kind of, we're, you know, we're pacifists and that means we don't really have any morality in our foreign policy at all. Mm -hmm. So we're pacifists and so we can trade and do deals with anybody and we just, we don't have arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and he has now shifted the argument. He has announced that Germany will spend, you know, an extra hundred billion dollars or hundred billion euros um, on defense and he will, you know, he will, you know, bring Germany's defense spending up. Um, and he's already begun to talk about the country as playing a different kind of role. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a little bit late for the Ukrainians who asked for Germany. Germany actually produces a lot of weaponry um, and they asked for German weaponry before the war and the Germans wouldn't give it to them because they thought it would be provocative and, you know, and because they're pacifists. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's late, but now they have decided to do it. So there's been already this big shift in not just in the Ukrainians' understanding of who they are, but the German understanding, you know, that actually we're a country that needs to take responsibility for security on the continent, um, and our previous kind of neutral pacifist stance doesn't work anymore. And a lot will depend on what Germany does in the, in the coming weeks. I mean, it is the wealthiest country in Europe. It's the, um, it's the, you know, it's the, you know, it's the most integrated country in Europe. I mean, it, you know, trades with everybody. Um, and German decisions, you know, German also had, a, Germany had enormous trade with Russia. Not, it's fam famously, they bought other, you know, a lot of gas from Russia, but also other, other things as well. And so, you know, they've made the decision to go along with the sanctions, at least most of them, and they, um, and they have made the decision to make this big shift. And, and what they do next, and whether he's popular for doing this, or whether people get angry at him for doing that, is, remains to be seen. Vladimir Putin. So I, I have been watching Putin since he first became um, president of Russia, which was in 19, he was first, his name first became, I mean, he was actually the head of the FSB, which is their, the ex-KGB, before that. but. His name became, you know, he was mentioned first as leader of Russia on um, December 31st, 1999. And so if you, if you read my book, which is about my New Year's Eve party from that night, um, so that was the night that Yeltsin resigned, um, who was the first democratically elected president of Russia, and announced that Vladimir Putin would be, you know, his, was his named successor. And so I started paying attention to him then, so that makes it, um, you know, two decades ago. Right. Um, I, I worried about him from the beginning because of his background, um, because he was, not just because he was in the KGB, I mean, um, people change and so on, but because of his continued loyalty to the KGB and to the KGB worldview. Um, one of the first things he did when he became head of the FSB was he put up a portrait of Andropov. I mean, this will mean nothing to anybody, but mm -hmm. Andropov was one of the last leaders of the Soviet Union. He was also a, had been head of the KGB. And what Andropov was most famous for 
was his belief that it's very important to crack down on dissent. Even little tiny you know, academic discussion circles can't be permitted because we know what this can lead to. And just for the, to give you some context, Andropov was the Soviet ambassador to Hungary, to Budapest, at the time of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Older people will remember that or know what it is. Um, and so was very paranoid about democracy movements and activism and so on. And so the, during the 1980s, you know, staged this crackdown. Putin was, of course, the KGB, um, was a KGB officer posted to East Germany in 1989. And so he watched the fall of the Berlin Wall, but from the perspective of someone who thought it was a great tragedy. Mm. You know, it was a disaster. It was the end of the Soviet empire in Europe. Um, it was terrible for him personally. You know, he had to leave his nice house in Dresden um, and his friends in the Stasi, the East German secret police, they lost their jobs. Um, and, he's, and he's spoken about this. I'm not, I'm not extrapolating. He's, he's said this in, in biographical interviews and so on. Um, so, for, so, so somebody who was an admirer of a drop-off and who perceived 1989 as a tragedy was always going to have a, a worldview that was... Um, that would clash with ours. And that was clear to me from the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I worried about him then, even when he had a sort of early phase when he was, he wanted to be part of various Western clubs and we made him part of the G8 and he, um, he you know, he kind of talked the language of economics and diplomacy um, and appointed people who, 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 who were sort of normal economists to run, to run Russia. Um, I, 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 but as I say, I worried about him from the beginning and also because almost immediately he began hollowing out the, you know, the admittedly weak but still nevertheless existing democratic institutions in Russia. So he created a system of, it was kind of managed democracy where there were sort of fake political parties that pretended to compete with each other but there weren't real elections. Um, and he managed that and sort of created this show of elections. Um, and I, you know, ha worried about, that. I mean, I think what's happened with time is that his original instincts, which is that, you know, democracy and, demo and the language of democracy is a threat to Russian style. And not just actually, it's not really even about Russia, it's about himself, mm -hmm. you know, about his personal rule. You know, he is an, aut you know, an autocrat. He's a kleptocrat. He's stolen, you know, millions, if not billions of dollars. Um, he's enabled another small group of people around him to do the same. Um, they have a political system that they like that keeps them in power. And they, and although he has, you know, an enormous amount of power, actually, by our standards, you know, he controls the equivalent of the White House, the Congress, the courts, um, uh, you know, the FBI, the CIA, the local police, um, you know, Exxon, Shell, you know, um, Chevron, uh, and, you know, and the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. So he really controls all the levers of power one way or the other. And yet he's deeply insecure because he knows he's illegitimate. He's never won an election, not a real election. I mean, he's, you know, people vote for him, but we don't know what it means. Um, and so he, ha and, and what he appears to be afraid of, and, and he's spoken about this too, um, is street demonstrations, you know, public uh, outrage. Um, those are the things that can challenge his power. And so, and also as a, as a, 
as a good former KGB officer, he very much sees the world as a series of mostly Western or American conspiracies aimed at him. Mm -hmm. So when he sees a demonstration in Russia, he think he said this in 2011 in public. You know that Hillary Clinton has organized it. Mm -hmm. You know it's a he. You know he saw it as you know, there was there could be no such thing as a grassroots Russian movement. You know he always saw it as some kind of Western game. Um, and as I said, you know very sadly the West was never strong enough to create a grassroots movement in Russia. You know mm -hmm. sadly, but. But, 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 and I'll just finish that by saying, it helps you though, when you, once you understand that, you understand one of the reasons why he's so obsessed with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Because Ukraine is a country that has had success, I mean, actually three big democratic revolutions in 1991, in 2005, and then again in 2014. Um, in 2014, they scared a, there was a, Ukraine had a president who was not just pro-Russian, but also increasingly autocratic. He was acting against the constitution. He was breaking all the laws. Um, he was pushing, he didn't want Ukraine to integrate with Europe. And that created this huge protest called the Maidan, which lasted for many days and ended with him fleeing the country. So, so one, one um, and, 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 and what Putin is afraid of is that. Yeah. He's afraid of that happening in Russia, and he sees Ukraine as the kind of carrier of this Western virus of democracy. So, so that, that's helpful, because uh, what, what I was going to ask is, one explanation for the invasion of Ukraine is, is a kind of strategic interest, uh, NATO beginning to press in, uh, uh, Russia concerned about um, aggression from the West. Another explanation is that it's much more uh, complicated. It's a democracy uh, versus autocracy. Um, uh, it, it's a kind of psychology of ruling. It, it, I mean, have I oversimplified this? No, no. So, so there is an argument, and I engaged in it quite a bit before the war about Putin's motives, and there are. Partly it comes from some people in the U.S. who always want to see the U.S. as the cause of everything and who have argued that the reason why Putin is doing all this is that it's our fault because we expanded NATO. Mm -hmm. um, and I have argued against that, um, firstly because I believe that if we hadn't expanded NATO, we would now be having this war in East Berlin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, So I, 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 I believe that this this desire for this dislike of democracy and this desire to reconstitute some version of the Soviet empire has been there since the early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't been universal. There are many, you know, excellent and um, um, impressive, you know, and ethical and educated Russians who do not believe that or want it, and I know many of them, um, but there is a part of the society that has had that you know, in sort of in the back of its head since then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was identified then, mm -hmm. you know, as people were talking about it in the early 90s. And in fact, the expansion of NATO happened because Poland, the Baltic states, um, you know, the Czechs and others feared that then. And they began their, their, they campaigned to join NATO and the US reluctantly agreed, Clint, the Clinton administration agreed, mostly because at that time, nobody thought it really mattered, mm -hmm. you know, because Russia was not a threat and, 
you know, what's the difference if Estonia is in NATO? It sounds nice, you know. Uh, no, nobody thought it was really important. And even the Russians at that time didn't say much about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Retrospectively, Putin has used this as a kind of club to beat the West and to, um, you know, and to explain what he's doing. I, I, I don't believe, so the fact is that right now in the Eastern NATO states, we have a, I mean, we actually have a little bit more now because we've sent some people in the last few days, but um, we've had, you know, literally um, NATO troops in the hundreds. So a few hundred U.S. soldiers doing little exercises, mm -hmm. a few hundred British soldiers in the Baltic states. I mean, our presence has been so light that there is no rational Russian general who could look at that and think we were about to invade them. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they were worried about some kind of invasion is, I mean, doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, you know, it's, my, it's my belief that they wanted, that for Putin it's both politically useful to have this war with the West or create the West as the enemy rather than, rather than Ukraine. And also, as I say, I think he genuinely believes that this you know, Western ideology is a threat to him. Good. Let me, I, I want to shift a little bit to, uh, to talk um, about this contest between autocracy and democracy. Uh, before Ukraine, before the invasion of Ukraine, um, there were, it, it, well, and there still are, there are a series of books of, of which you have contributed one called The Twilight of Democracy. Uh, the Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism, available for purchase and signing uh, <laughs> after uh, our talk. Um, but, but there are others, uh, Levitsky and Zivlad, how, how Democracies Die, um, uh, Timothy Snyder's book. Walk your mic. Yeah, no. Well, it's showing that I'm on, so I'm going to talk loud until we can get it fixed. How's that? But um, so. The, um, the, the question of autocracy and democracy and the contest between those two, what, um, what is at stake in Ukraine? You, you wrote um, in your testimony to the Senate earlier this morning that should Ukraine uh, be under Russian rule at the end of all of this, that will be a severe setback for democracy worldwide. Should Ukraine not fall to Russian uh, rule, uh, that will be a strong signal for the strength of the future of democracy. It is, where do you locate the Ukraine conflict in this wider uh, discussion of the conflict between democracy and autocracy? So first of all, I mean, it's interesting and you know, important to remember that that spate of books that you're talking about that I was part of and Tim Snyder and others um, were inspired um, partly by international developments and the rise of Russia, which actually Tim Snyder and I have both followed for, um, he's a very old friend of mine and we've followed it for many years because we're both interested in Ukraine and Russia. Um, but they were also inspired by events in the United States. So um, the fear that um, the kind of language and the kind of politics that, were, that we could see gaining popularity abroad might come here was the, was the inspiration for those books. So, so that's a, you know, the, you know, the idea that what Putin does is totally unimaginable and could never happen here 
I mean, maybe some aspects of it could never happen here, but certainly those, the temptation to become part of that kind of political system is in all of us, and it's in every society. Um, and not only that, the American founders knew that. And one of the reasons we have such a weird constitution is because they were trying to write a constitution um, that would prohibit demagogues from, from, from upsetting the apple cart. And they talked about it at the time, if you read the Federalist Papers, which I gather you do read here. I was just told that this evening. <laughs> um, it's, it's in there, um, you know, Alexander Hamilton has this description of, um, you know, someday a demagogue will come along and he'll undermine, you know. So, you know, so it was all there, and they, and they, of course, knew it because they were reading the history of um, ancient Rome, you know, and the story of Caesar. So these are very, very old forms of human, human behavior. Um, I mean, autocracy versus democracy, talking about it nowadays is a little bit difficult. I mean, I don't want people to think that we're going back to a Cold War and there's like a, you know, there's a Western bloc and there's an Eastern bloc um, and each one has a clear ideology. Um, autocracies nowadays are, there are many different kinds, right? So there's Chinese communists and there's, you know, Venezuelan Bolivarian socialists and there's, um, you know, the Russian, I don't know what they are, nationalists, I guess. Um, and there's, you know, Iran who are theocrats. Um, these are very different ideologies and these are diff very geographically different societies um, and historically very different with nothing in common. Um, they do now cooperate in new ways. Um, thanks to globalization, they are able to, you know, the, the kind of corrupt state companies in one autocracy can corrupt, you know, invest in the, another. So the Russian, you know, um, you know, Rosneft, which is a, for a company that was founded on stolen money, it was stolen from another oligarch, is a big investor in Venezuela. Um, you know, they, they share surveillance technology, they share political tactics, they watch what one another is doing, um, they help one another get around sanctions. And so, you know, when Belarus was sanctioned um, earlier this, you know, or last year, um, you know, the Russians provided new markets for them and, and you know, so on. And I think there's quite a lot, there was quite a lot of, you know, Belarusian goods being stamped as Russian and then, you know, exported. Um, so so they, they, they do work together in some ways and they do have a kind of common enemy, which is the same thing that Putin identified, which is this, you know, this, this language of democracy, this language of, you know, about, about fairness, this, this anti-corruption, um, you know, this uh, you know, the, the, uh, objections to corruption and this feeling that, you know, an unjust society is wrong. Mm -hmm. And they have to, they all have to push back at that all the time in, in their different ways, whether in, you know, Hong Kong or Burma or, you know, or Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. um, and so and so they have some things in common and they share things, but they aren't a single block. And 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 I don't, and that's one of the reasons why I think foreign policy is going to be so difficult. You know, we Americans want it to be kind of black and white. You know, like a couple of years ago, everybody went, Let, let's just have one enemy. Let's have China, you know. <laughs> um, and you, you could still hear this you, you, in Washington, you know, a month ago. You know, we shouldn't be fighting Russia. We should be fighting China. But, you know, the point is you don't, you don't get that choice because the, the Russians don't want to be friends with you. You know, and they don't want to help you fight the Chinese. You know, that's not how it works. Um, and so I think there will, you know, we will have different kinds of relationships with each one of these countries. Some will be friendly or some less friendly. Um, but we do need to start thinking much more systematically about 
what we, how we imagine the world in the long term and what kind of strategy we have as the leader of the world's democracies. I'm trying now to train myself not to use the expression the West, mm. because it, you know, by democracies I mean South Korea, I mean Japan, I mean Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, I mean some of the, the South American democracies who have done, um, you know, some who have really sacrificed a lot to push back against Venezuela. Um, so there's a, you know, but I, but if we're the leader or the or the potential leader of this group, um, I would like us to think more strategically about what we can do together. Whether it's fighting back against kleptocracy and preventing the use of money laundering to, you know, which affects all of our countries, or whether it's finding new ways to communicate with the autocratic world. I think there's a lot we can do as a as a sort of team. Good. Um, let me shift gears. And, and um, ask you, I've, he I've heard you talk about this uh, before. Um, in 1989, which is when you were, for lack of a better way to put it, your political coming of age. You were a young journalist. Uh, you, had, uh, you were studying in, in England and, and left to, to come to Poland, as I uh, hear, understand the story. Um, and right around that time, the Berlin Wall was coming down. I, 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 I wondered if, if you could talk about that experience at that time and how that has um, influenced your later interpretation of events that we're seeing right now. What, what sort of lens did that create that um, helped you interpret things uh, today? I don't know that it, much, it created a lens so much as a... Um as an understanding of the power of that language. I mean, so I witnessed the collapse of the Soviet empire, um, and, and, I, and I did so surrounded by people who were really, really happy that it was gone. So I did, I did not have Vladimir Putin's point of view. Um, and, you know, the, the both first in Poland, which is where I was living, but also I traveled in the whole region. I traveled in the Czech Republic and in, in Ukraine, actually. My first trip to Ukraine was in 1990. Um, and so the, the experience of watching it fall apart um, and, and watching how something that seemed so permanent, I mean, it's hard for you all, you know, everybody younger than 40 probably to imagine, but it, it felt like this permanent part of the landscape. It was this big red patch on the map, you know, and it didn't change. Um, and to see that it fell apart because of um, you know, because the idea, you know, and again, this was how ideas become real, because the ideology was insufficient, because people didn't believe in it anymore, because nobody wanted to support it, um, because other ideas were more attractive. Um, you know, it was a very important lesson to me in how political change happens. Um, it probably did make me, at least for a decade or so, overly optimistic about how, how similar kinds of democratic movements could work elsewhere. Um, I still do believe that any country can eventually become a democracy. This is, um, you know, I don't think there are hard and fast rules like some cultures don't make it possible. I don't believe that because cultures change and countries change and places change and, you, you know, you can create change. Um, but, but I was probably over-optimistic about the possibility of democratic change for a long time. Um, in the last decade or so, I've become much less so, um, you know, and I now see how much of that period was, you know, what happened was shaped by the kind of luck and 
the fact that Mikhail Gorbachev, who was then the leader of the Soviet Union, did not want to use violence, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, the, and it was the lack of violence, you know, and the refusal mm -hmm. to use that, which, which shaped that era. I mean, it was a real peaceful revolution, but it right, didn't, right. you know, it could have gone otherwise. Right. I mean, there are some ways in which what's happening now in Ukraine is the continuation of that. Mm -hmm. You know, if the, you know, if the, it's the sort of what we're paying for having had such a peaceful transition. You know, somebody was dissatisfied with it. And yeah, so I, so I want to um, now move ahead on, on that same kind of question about uh, 30 years now and, and ask you to uh, uh, kind of imagine what students today, those who are 18 to 22 year olds, um, how the current context will shape the ways in which they view politics, democracy. And, and when you think about it, uh, the students who are in college today, um, they vaguely remember the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, they uh, certainly remember uh, the pandemic, um, Trump's election, uh, the recent race, racial reckoning of last summer, and now Ukraine. And January the 6th. And January the 6th, I've got that one right there. How, um, how might that experience and those events influence the way that, that they view politics? So I, I slightly feel that this is a question for them, yeah. you know, guys, you know, <laughs> um, and not for but, me. But did you know but, in 1989 how, how that was going to influence you today? No. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. I mean, the funny thing about 1989, so I was tw I 25, I was a freelance journalist. And I kind of thought, and, and I was having, I had these articles, you know, that was on the front pages of British newspapers, and, and, and I kind of thought, you know, that life would now just go on being like that. You know, I didn't have that much of an imagination that, you know, I also didn't realize how lucky we were that it was such a happy story. I mean, mm -hmm. okay, not happy for Putin, but really happy for almost everybody else, and there was no violence. Um, there was this peaceful transition to a, you know, in, in most cases, a better system. I mean, there were there were problems in some places, you know, Yugoslavia, which is a place that often gets forgotten. Um, you know, there were there were parts of it that didn't go so well, but generally speaking, it was an enormously positive and optimistic story. Um, and you know, young journalists just starting out now don't get these positive, optimistic stories to write about, and mm -hmm. I, I I feel for them. I mean, I, I do think that the the, the combination of January the 6th and the Ukraine war, which, well, of course, we still don't know how that's going to come out, will be very defining. Mm -hmm. um, because those are both s about democracy and about whether we can have it and whether it can exist in the 21st century, given the pressures of the nature of the modern economy and social media and the backlash against globalization and so on. So um, I think those, those two events and this quarrel you know, mm -hmm. um, democracy and autocracy, both domestically and abroad, will be the defining argument for the next two or three decades. Because um, there, there's a Harvard Institute poll that, um, let me see if I get this right. So 7% of those 18 to 29 year olds believe uh, the U.S., only 7% believe the U.S. is a healthy democracy. 27% uh, believe it is somewhat functioning. 52% of the youth in America believe democracy is either in trouble or we have a failed democracy. 
So, so there, there is a kind of context yeah. already for, uh, for that. Yeah, I mean, of course, the funny thing about those, I've seen those kinds of polls. Yeah. I don't know if that one in specific. Um, the funny thing about them is the reasons why people think we have a failed democracy are really different. That's right. So right. Right. some, you know, I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't know the politics of this audience, but, you know, whether it's because you think, you know, you know, the left has taken over everything and needs, and they've wrecked democracy, or whether you think it's because the right has wrecked democracy. I mean, there, there are a lot of different reasons why you might right. think, um, think democracy is over. So it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a funny poll because it's, it shows more unity than there actually is. But, right. So the, reason, the, the people's explanations for that are quite different. Okay, so I want, I want to um, uh, close by um, asking you to further speculate on the future. So um, this is... Get out my crystal ball, yeah. Yeah, the uh, conclusion to Anne's book, which I think I mentioned is available for purchase afterwards and <laughs> she'll sign. You can also buy it on Amazon. Too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but they can't, you won't sign it. I won't I sign it. You won't go with the Amazon. No. So these are the last two paragraphs and um, I've got a question uh, for Anne after these last two paragraphs. To some, the precariousness of the current moment seems frightening, and yet this uncertainty has always been there. The liberalism of John Stuart Mill, Thomas Jefferson, or Vaclav Havel never promised anything permanent. The checks and balances of Western constitutional democracies never guaranteed stability. Liberal democracies always demanded things from citizens, participation, argument, effort, struggle. They always required some tolerance for cacophony and chaos, as well as some willingness to push back at the people who create cacophony and chaos. They always acknowledged the possibility of failure, a failure that would change plans, alter lives, break up families, we always knew or should have known that history could once again reach into our private lives and rearrange them. We always knew or should have known that alternative visions of our nations would try to draw us in. But maybe picking our way through the darkness, we will find that, to get, that together we can resist them. So in class, when I read uh, these last couple of paragraphs, I asked uh, the students, whether that's an optimistic or a pessimistic vision. Let me ask you. So let me say two things about it. One is that, you know, most people want, you know, one really fundamental human desire is for stability and predictability. You want to know what the future will be like so that you can plan for it. And unfortunately, one of the things that democratic politics can't give you is that. Um, and so that is one of the, it's one of the underlying sources of discomfort in American life. Um, and I don't find that either optimistic or pessimistic. I find it it's to be the, you know, it's the fundamental challenge. I mean, in exchange for accepting that fear, that sense of instability, we get all kinds of other things like free speech, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and we get um, a chance to impact our governments in a way that people in other countries don't. So we get other things for it. Um, but let me also say something else, which is that I, so I am naturally very pessimistic. I, I mean, you don't study Soviet history, you know, <laughs> if you're not. And, <laughs> and 
and I've had to kind of educate myself out of it. And so the conclusion I've come to is that it is very irresponsible for me to be a pessimist because for me to be a pessimist is to tell people like, you know, my children or like the younger people here, you know, that there's no hope, you know, democracy will fail. Um, and, and I think the point about, it's not just democracy, but life is that, you know, everything that happens tomorrow um, is predicated on what we do today. So there is no inevitability. It is not inevitable that democracy will succeed and it is not inevitable that democracy will decline. Um, and therefore it is incumbent on all of us to be optimists. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to act as if it will succeed and we have to work to make it succeed because only if we do that can it happen. Because if we don't, then, um, then, you know, then, then, it, then it can go the other way. So there is no guarantee of anything. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so it is necessary to, to, to act as an optimism, as an optimist, and to, and to constantly think about how to be constructive and how to build things. Great. Well, that, that's a wonderful note for us to end on. And we could uh, continue the conversation much, much longer, but I know you have uh, a busy uh, evening ahead of you as well as a busy week or two. And we will, uh, but you will have a chance to ask Anne some questions at the reception afterwards. So we invite you to stick around and, and try to uh, ask her your burning question that I didn't ask that you wished I had. Um, but join me in thanking Anne for coming to us.